Sneakers on shoes. What's the matter, Morty? Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Fashion has changed. Hi, I'm Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. Today we are recording in my childhood home because yet again there is construction going on in the street and it's not a cute look for recording. I'm scared of fucking up your mom's pristine white carpets, but (laughs) other than that, it's great. I know, my mom's not home right now, but my father gave you a tour of his favorite alcohol-free beverages. Which we're not going to plug because they're not paying us. Unnamed zero-proof beverage. Can we just get straight into it? Like, I feel like nothing interesting has happened in my life. All that's been going on in my life is film pre-production. And like, I don't want to be one of those Hollywood assholes. I'm already a podcasting asshole. (laughs) It can't be both. True. The Met is coming. And I know this because Vogue released their May issue, which always relates to the theme. Right. But this year it like really relates. (laughs) This cover features several models at archival Lagerfeld Designs shot by Annie Leibovitz at the Grand Palais, which was the venue for so many of those iconic Chanel shows. Chanel is paying for, at least in part, their restoration. And I will say, you can tell that Annie Leibovitz shot this because they don't all look like they're in the same room. It is photoshopped to a degree that you're like, oh, did AI create this? Because there's no way human hands touched any of this. Yeah, it's a collage of dozens of images that looks like a painting. They shot Kendall Jenner, then they shot Amber and Shalom, then they shot like a drop cloth in the background. (laughs) Also, you know it's Annie Leibovitz when there's like a drop cloth, crumbling plaster. (laughs) This bitch like hates a building that actually isn't in some form of disrepair. Absolutely. Inside the editorial is they had what? Eight designers, 10 designers reinterpret Lagerfeld's designs. And I'm sorry to use a gross turn of phrase, but I feel like this editorial with these designers, it feels like they've blown their load a little bit. Because at once, I am relieved to see that these designers have produced pretty successful reinterpretations of Lagerfeld's looks. But then also, if we're already seeing this in vogue, What is left to do on the red carpet? This just made me excited for the red carpet. I feel like there's a lot left to do. Half of these designers are making five... 10 outfits anyway. That's true. Like to me, the editorial inside was much more exciting than the cover was. Also, how campy was that photo of Naomi Campbell with Choupette? Yes. So Naomi Campbell was in Ballman. Her look, which is iconic in the editorial, but it is our fear for the red carpet, which is everyone is just going to be dressed like Karl Lagerfeld. Well, I think that's just going to be Cara Delevingne. But I would love to see some Choupette representation. Scaparelli could do a version of the lion dress but with a hyper realistic choupette that would be amazing or choupette could walk the carpet since we know it's still alive i mean i know that cats live for a long time so i guess i shouldn't be surprised but like who's taking care of choupette every time we talk about the med and the carl lagerfeld show that's upcoming i keep thinking about how his estate is still not resolved and that cat got a majority of his estate that is being disputed currently I swear I will look into this and report back about what's going on with Lagerfeld's estate. Yeah. I thought the Valentino look, as per usual, was the most successful. Like, it's a nice mix of what we've seen from Valentino, those voluminous cape coats, but now they're using the camellia, which is the flower synonymous with Chanel, and then that, like, little thoughty femme Lagerfeld suit underneath. 
Yeah, I thought they did a good job of interpreting Chanel. But I think the Margiela and the Tom Brown were the most successful. I liked Simone Rocha too. I liked that she did a bridal look. Yes, which Lagerfeld was known for, especially with Chanel. And in her little interview section, she brought up the fact that, yeah, Karl Lagerfeld was the first one to do those H&M collaborations, which I completely forgot about. He paved the way. But back to the cover, it is nice to see Devin Aoki. Between this and the acne campaign that she was just in, she's having a bit of a moment. With the Fast 10 movie coming out, people are going back and giving Too Fast, Too Furious, of which she's in, and her amazing costumes in that film, the appreciation they deserve. And her amazing car in that film. That's the Y2K aesthetic I want. In other news... French protesters stormed the LVMH offices. The protests that have been going on for about three months, protesting the increase in the retirement age from 62 to 64. Funny for us Americans to witness because we, I think, will be retiring. Right now, if you're born after 1960, you get to retire and get your benefits at 67. I feel like for us, by the time we're retirement age, it's 75. Oh, absolutely. And there'll be no (laughs) benefits for us to get, actually. My first thought when I saw this was yes bitch i stand with these protesters you mean we bitch (laughs) we bitch (laughs) bernard arnault has over 200 billion dollars right he is the richest man in france he's in the top 10 of richest men in the world it's morally reprehensible and it's cool to see people stand up to that Also, the videos are so dramatic. They had like flares. So there was like red light and smoke. Like it looked insane. Well, they've had three months to prepare and kind of improve upon their protesting theatrics. You can only throw so many Molotov cocktails before you got to change it up. I love that French people actually have enough self-respect to protest. And they're way better off than us. Like at least they have socialized medicine. We're not about to, like, storm the Capitol over that shit. Yeah, storming the Capitol really got a a bad rap, didn't it, on January 6th. We don't want to repeat that. I'm not even mad that it happened. It was just for the wrong reason. Macron isn't going to back down. That retirement age is going to 64. They can protest all they like. And I will watch it via TikTok. (laughs) And we're getting to American uh, tourism season. So those are my favorite kind of videos I've been seeing of American tourists trying to like recapture their French fantasy and then like protesting and trash on fire is happening. Welcome to France, bitch. In other news, the British fashion industry has lost another legend. The swinging 60s queen, Mary Quant. The coolest bitch to ever rock a Vidal Sassoon haircut. Well, there is some controversy when I was researching her because I equate her as the woman that invented the miniskirt. But I learned that among fashion historians are like, is it Courage? Is it her? We don't know. Well, she made miniskirts popular. And she gave them their name because she named it after her favorite car at the time, the Mini Cooper. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Yeah, she was a very modern thinker. And in addition to the mini skirt, she also made colored tights really popular, PVC, stuff like that. She was such a instrumental part of mod fashion and so influential. And you forget how subversive her designs were at the time. Like we look at them now and it's like a mini skirt, whatever. But then it was crazy to dress like that. Yeah, and you think about Vivian Westwood who passed away and Mary Quant and they both had stores and were listening to their customers. That's what she was saying. The quote that I found where she was talking about the creation of the mini skirt was that she was like, look, that was already happening, but 
her customers would come in and just be like, I want a shorter skirt, a shorter skirt. So she was giving them what the youth wanted. She was also so on the forefront of branding and licensing. If you've never seen the packaging for her makeup, like Google it immediately. She had this very distinctive Daisy logo that's so, it's actually very now. Like I feel like I see these sorts of flower motifs so often in design and in fashion now, but she was kind of the OG of that. And she made everything. She even had her own version of a Barbie doll, basically. Like, she designed cars. I don't know if you've seen the car. It's so cute. It actually has the Daisy emblem, like, in the steering wheel. That's so cute. Oh, wait, yeah, I have. Yes, I did. I have seen this. And it is very adorable. Well, RIP to a legend. Dame Mary Quant. So, Chelsea, I just want to give you my condolences. I want to check in. I can't believe it's been this long in the podcast that I haven't asked you. How are you doing with this Taylor Swift breakup? I mean, I want Taylor to be happy, but there was something about Joe that just wasn't giving, which is not to say that she needs to be with like a fame whore or whatever. Like she deserves to have a partner that is Stedman-esque. Right. I don't know. There was something about this that I'm kind of not surprised. So to take it back, Taylor Swift and Joe Alwyn have ended their love story after six years. It is said that they broke up a few weeks ago. Some say before her tour began. A quote from People says that the breakup was due largely to differences in their personalities. Seems weird to figure that out six years in, but what do I know? They've had rough patches before and always worked things out, so friends thought that they would take some time apart but eventually come back together. Other sources said that they ultimately weren't the right fit for one another. Bye, London boy. Do we think that Taylor's era of dating bland white Englishmen is over? I hope so. Right? We did, I mean, we've got back-to-back Calvin Harris, Tom Hiddleston, Joe Allen. The guys that she dates are very suspect. And I hope, like Kylie Jenner, she kind of pulls a 180 and, like, does something different, switches it up a bit. Obviously, the Kaler Gaylor truther in me has been very activated by this breakup because Swifties are flocking to Cornelia Street, right. which is where she used to live, and like laying bouquets of flowers outside of this apartment because they perceive that song to be about Joe Alwyn, even though it is so obviously, allegedly about Carly Kloss. Obviously. <laughs> Like, I hate when people attribute songs to Joe that are obviously not about Joe. Like, Cruel Summer is another example of this. Right, right. I saw some TikTok recently, and this guy was like, you think when Taylor is talking about the shape of someone's body being new, she's talking about Joe? Like, come on. I don't even want to say anything else, because I just want to let you go about... Kaler for like 40 minutes don't let me do that although when we do live shows I was thinking that I could present my case I think you should (laughs) yeah well if you do that then I need to do a mini infographic about her relationship with Tom Hiddleston because what will forever surprise me is how short-lived that public relationship was and how private her relationship with Joe was which even to the casual pop culture consumer, leads you to believe that she or Tom Hiddleston were calling the paparazzis on themselves throughout the courtship. Well, obviously. Joe's a different kind of guy. Joe's the kind of famous person that doesn't actually like being a celebrity. Like, he just wants to act and, like, be in an occasional Prada ad. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, in addition to that, he is also listed as a co-writer on 10 of Taylor Swift's songs, right? Well, under a pseudonym. Uh, William Bowery. Right. That's a terrible name. So six songs on Folklore, three songs on Evermore, and Sweet Nothing on Midnight's is what he's credited as William Bowery on. So I guess... Their love may have ended, but those publishing royalties last a lifetime. I just want to point out that Sweet Nothing is the worst song on Midnight's. In my brief interlude in our live show where I talk about Tom Hiddleston, like, yes, did that relationship damage his career? A thousand and ten percent. Are the best songs on Reputation about him? Also, yes. Well, some of them are about Carly Kloss. (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm putting that out there. Getaway car. Definitely about Tom Hiddleston. Yes, just getaway car. Here's hoping Joe does as iconic of a post-breakup interview as Tom Hiddleston did with GQ. Something tells me he has a lot more restraint than that. Speaking of psychotic fan armies, shall we discuss Swarm, Donald Glover's new limited series about a Beyonce fan from hell? And by Beyonce, I mean Nyjah. Yes. A extremely thinly veiled parody of Beyonce. You might expect us to be talking about Beef, which was released last Friday, but guys, we're behind on our television. We just got through Swarm, so that's what we'll be talking about. And in the words of Lady Gaga, I don't believe in the glorification of murder, but I do believe in the empowerment of women. (laughs) That's my feeling about this show. I love how this show kind of speaks to the fact that Beyonce's brand is so built around the empowerment of women, but we see how that gets twisted and becomes a very dark thing in Swarm. Like, ultimately, this person feels empowered to murder people. If you take devoted fandom to its most extreme conclusion, you become a serial killer. For sure. I really enjoyed watching this. It definitely wasn't always fun. This show is extremely dark, extremely heavy. It's a bit uneven. Some episodes are certainly stronger than others. I don't know if we needed the Billie Eilish episode, for example. Well, the Billie Eilish episode, it's clearly the writers had been watching the Nexium documentaries and was like, oh, let's have Dre on the way to Bonnaroo run into a cult. Billie Eilish great actress. She could actually do this professionally, I feel, which cannot be said of every pop star. Yeah, no, she definitely has a career ahead of her, and I think she wants to focus more on that. I think they do, just in general with this show, such a great job with characters of making you side with a serial killer. Like, Billie Eilish and her friends are so annoying by the end of that that you're like, yeah, I'm okay with this murder. (laughs) But other murders you're definitely not okay with. Other murders are very hard to watch. But I think I like this show because It's kind of absurd and bizarre in a way that you don't usually get from television. Like the scene where Nyjah gets bit. Excellent use of Maxwell's Kate Bush cover, by the way. They also did a great job of, instead of creating a parallel celebrity, just taking hyper-specific moments and rumors about Beyonce and making them plot details. Dre biting Nija has to be inspired by the Tiffany Haddish interview where she talks about how someone bit Beyonce at a party. But also the very minor things, like they made fake versions of her Ivy Park Adidas collab stuff right? as costumes in this. I really loved the song that was obviously inspired by the first song on Lemonade that has those sort of haunting, almost choral vocals right the way that they reinterpreted that in swarm was so good because on the surface right we all watch it because it's like oh it's a dedicated beyonce fan who goes crazy 
but they do do a good job of grounding it in a reality of this character's pain where you understand how she could get to this place. Totally. Also, I'm fascinated by the lack of interest in positive representation when it comes to race and gender. Like, this is Glad's worst nightmare, the show. <laughs> Can we talk about the true crime episode? Because that's the best one, I think. And you haven't watched that much of Atlanta, but that is something that Donald Glover excels in in Atlanta. I think about there's a episode in season one that is a fake Charlie Rose show with Paperboy having a conversation with a kind of New York Magazine pundit type. And they built in commercials, fake commercials within the show. Like you are watching an uninterrupted. Right, I've heard about this episode. That sounds amazing. The penultimate episode of Swarm, if you haven't seen it, is a Forensic Files-esque show about Dre or about these series of murders and the detective who puts it all together. Yeah, it's really campy and has like a just deranged sense of humor. There's really nothing likable about this main character. Like Dre is like the biggest anti-hero. Like she's basically like a chronically online version of Eileen Wuornos or something. Oh my God. Yes, you're completely correct. In the final episode, they do try to... I wouldn't say salvage her, but you think that she's turned over a new leaf because she's found love and she's very dedicated to this person. And then it's set up early on that this person does not like nausea and prefers her sister, which that's my favorite <laughs> detail is like they work Solange into it. And I love what they do with the title cards on this show. It's just, yeah, it's good. Watch it. I won't spoil the ending, but I do just want to get a sense of your idea for it because my one of my favorite bad movie podcasts how did this get made talks about something called the jacob's ladder scenario which is a lot of bad movies can be explained and i'm not saying swarm is bad with the idea that the spoiler for jacob's ladder but the end is like <laughs> all of the crazy shit that tim robbins has seen in this movie is it's the dmt part of you know the last vestiges of him dying right and so there was a part of me while watching the end of this was like, did Dre die in the first episode and this has all just been a fantasy? Well, the ending of the show is very open-ended in general. But I like that because there's no way to sort of neatly wrap up this like fucked up story. Well, especially if you don't want to go with what would typically happen, which is they die or they get caught. Shall we maybe discuss what fandom might be most likely to kill? <laughs> Should we just take the beehive out of this? They're crazy. But I think that yeah. Nicki Minaj fans, and I say this as a barb, like no shade. Like if you put a barb in a boxing ring with a little monster or an urinator or something, like they're dead. Oh, yeah. I mean, Swifties are, are not even getting into the ring. That bell isn't even ringing and it's over for them. Yeah. And I think little monsters, while they love Gaga, you know... They're made of softer stuff. Also, I don't know shit about K-pop, but I feel like those oh. fans could be murderous. Like, you know that guy that shot Ronald Reagan to get Jodie Foster's <laughs> attention? Right. Like, I'm pretty sure that someone could do that, but for one of the BTS guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, people have fully been bullied off of Twitter by K-pop stands. Twitter is nothing but K-pop stands. I very rarely look on Twitter, but every time I do, that's what it is. Anyway, speaking of things that are also fucked up and depressing, we finally watched the Nan Golden documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, now streaming on our fave HBO Max. A digression. Did you see that they announced that they're now going to be going by Max? Wait, what? The stock dipped six points when they announced this. 
So with the impending Discovery Time Warner merger, we knew that there was going to be a new streaming service. I had assumed it would be Discovery Max. Who cares about Discovery Channel? I understand that, but it's the bigger platform. But I only say this to say, let's go back a second. HBO Max is HBO Max because of fucking Cinemax, the lesser of the two channels that Time Warner has. So the fact that they got rid of HBO and there's no mention of Discovery and we're just Max? It makes me think of the 1950s diner that the Saved by the Bell teenagers used to go to. <laughs> That's fucked. So depending on when you're listening to this podcast, you'll be able to watch the Nan Golden doc on HBO Max or Max. <laughs> For those who have not seen the documentary, it overlays Nan Golden's history her past work with her present work with trying to take down the Sackler family. I knew of her heroin addiction in the 80s, but I wasn't aware that she had relapsed and became addicted to opioids. That was the catalyst for all of her activism. Look, I feel silly. It makes a lot of sense. We all know that the Sackler family is fucking evil. Yeah, they are evil. I like how in this film, she's like, as long as there are jails, like they should be in it. And it's so true. I mean, they deserve more than jail, honestly. It's so inspiring to see her stand up to them in this way. The documentary begins with them going into the Sackler wing at the Met, throwing uh, pill bottles, laying on the ground, and it escalates to Dan Golden turning down a retrospective show at the National Portrait Gallery because... She's not going to do business with anyone that takes Sackler money. And then that creates a domino effect where everyone, all of these art institutions basically turn down Sackler money, take their names down off of wings. It's amazing. I remember getting really emotional watching Instagram videos from the Guggenheim activation that they did. But seeing it in this film, it's just, it's so incredible. As protest, as a work of art, she's just such a genius. We don't deserve her. Also, I feel like I've watched so many documentaries lately about people that are famous because of their looks or people that are famous for being famous. So it's just so refreshing to watch something about someone that's famous because they're actually a genius. Like Nan Golden is one of the greatest artists in the world. She's like Caravaggio level classic. The Caravaggio of the Bowery, perhaps? Yeah. I mean, I've always loved... Her work, obviously, I feel like if you go to art school, you can't not love Nan Golden. But to hear the backstory of the Ballad of Sexual Dependency, which if you like Nan Golden's work, you've seen those self-portraits of her with the the bloody and bruised eyes, which came from her ex-boyfriend who was trying to break up with her. And by breaking up with her, he beat the shit out of her. But he torched their apartment or the place that they were staying at, I believe, in Berlin at the time. And by the grace of God, she had all her slides at somewhere else. Yeah, seriously, thank God. Also, if I had access to a time machine, I am not going back to save JFK. I'm going to the double feature of the Ballad of Sexual Dependency and Female Trouble. Oh, yeah. I thought of you during that part of the documentary. Like, I am rubbing shoulders with Cookie Mueller and Peter Hujar. Like, that's that's what I want. Not that that wasn't an extremely dark time, but still. I binge swarmed so we could talk about it. And then I watched this documentary, which was just like heavy thing after heavy thing. It's a beautiful documentary, but... Holy shit, it just anchors you down 
to the ground, right? Again, going back to the Sacklers, I don't know how all of them can't just kill themselves because they, they should. They declare bankruptcy, but part of the bankruptcy hearing, which they like offloaded a bunch of money, so they were not really bankrupting themselves, but they had to sit in on the Zoom call that was basically like a, a victim impact statement. Yeah, that was the other part that really got me. As you watch the documentary, you only get, I imagine, just a few of these stories. I'm sure there were dozens and dozens, but but even I put myself in the family of the Sacklers hearing this, and I'd be like, oh, I would have to not be on this earth anymore. I know, the parents that played like the 911 call, it's just, it's it's beyond. Also, they made Valium too. I know. They really fucked up every single generation in their own way. From boomers to Gen Z, we got you all. But it is, at the end of the day, such a powerful documentary because the idea that art can actually change policy. Well, it's also so much about community building and survival in the face of just pure evil. Right, there is a part that gets very Harvey Weinstein, New York Times, spotlighty, where the Sackler family has Dan Golden and several of the people working in the organization Payne followed. And they, you see this in the documentary, right? There's one part where they shame the guy who's been sitting outside their apartment and then he just drives off waving at them. Yeah, they're creepy billionaires. Who's surprised by that? Uh, we'll, we'll put this in the show notes, but still one of my favorite performative acts of protest, I guess, is one of the Sacklers has a wife who's a fashion designer who a few years ago had a show at Fashion Week and her High-powered publicist got a, a New York Times style section article profile for her, but all the profile was about was like, so the money that's funding this is basically blood money. Like, how do you feel about that? And she's like, why can't you just ask me about, you know, my like $500 hoodie? This is so unfair. These people are actually monsters. Also, okay, I know this is a minor detail, but I love the part where she was talking about being in her early 20s and like having some drag queen friends and the fact that they would go to thrift stores and that you could get Fortuny dresses at thrift stores in the 70s, which I've heard about this before, obviously, but it just it just sounds incredible. What has now become apocryphal that it's like, oh, just go to a thrift store on the Upper East Side because all the rich women donate their stuff there is... The shit that you could get back in the day. Damn. Also, I feel like people don't talk about her fashion work enough. Like, there's not a ton of it what did she do well she did that famous portfolio of jamie king for the new york times magazine she did a really great right. british vogue cover with kate moss she did a bottega veneta campaign like she does stuff here and there but she's also just never a photographer that's sold out in the way that say uh person who photographed this month's Vogue cover may have. Yeah, Nan Golden left the crumbling buildings behind when she moved off the Bowery. Nan Golden knows that nothing good can come from Photoshop. <laughs> like, she needs to have an intervention with some other photographer. She's like, David LaChapelle, Annie, we got to talk about this. You did good work. I'm not saying you haven't done good work. But... I know you have it in you. Because imagine if the Vogue cover shoot which is staged like a 1950s, like a Norman Parkinson or an Avedon photo or yeah. something. Imagine if that was just like a real photo shot by Annie Leibovitz without retouching. Annie Leibovitz opened up Pandora's box in the mid-2000s with Photoshop. We can't get her back in. If she can't reconstruct a photo for Vogue using parts literally from seven other photos, 
she can't do it. Well, the sad thing is that she can. We know <laughs> she can. All of her best work, everything basically like early 2000s and before looks normal. It's been 20 years, Chell. We're not getting her back. <sighs> so yeah, watch all the beauty and the bloodshed. On Max. On, on Max. Anyway, from a great documentary to a fine documentary. Kardashaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. We're going to talk about the Travis and Courtney wedding documentary, which... Trigger warning. We didn't give you one for Nan Golden, but we'll give you one for this. A fine documentary? Chelsea, that was excruciating to watch. I had to watch it in three parts, and I'm sorry... I know that it was Ellen Von Unwer's videographer who shot all of it, including the, like, nod to Madonna's truth or dare black and white interstitials afterwards, but it looked awful. Okay, I do agree that it could have used less, like, fake Super 8 effects, but it did look like a fairy tale. It was much more visually stunning than your average episode of The Kardashians. And I actually thoroughly enjoyed watching the entire thing, which I did watch in one sitting immediately when it came out. So I watched it like two in the morning or something. Can we talk about the fact that Travis is such a chick though? In what way? His sentimentality around this wedding, it's like he's more into it than Court. I did feel for Courtney because it's been known since keeping up with the Kardashians and into the Kardashians that she didn't want a wedding. She never thought about that. But she reveals during this special that it's because once her father died, she was like, oh, why would I ever want to have a wedding? My father's not going to be there. Yeah. I do tear up every time the men in their lives reference Robert and how proud Robert would be. Yeah, Travis, I think, mentioned him in his toast. It is so clear that Courtney and Travis are the producers of this documentary because there is a lack of objectivity that you can feel increasingly in the Kardashians, but it makes you realize it's what made keeping up with the Kardashians great because they were producers making sure that each episode was incredibly interesting. Okay, but you did get Courtney being blackout drunk in Vegas. That's like old Kardashians type content. Oh yeah, no, that was amazing. And also I had assumed... Because if you're going to get married in Vegas, you might as well get married at, like, the Elvis Chapel, the Little White Chapel. They got married at some, like, off-brand Elvis (laughs) Chapel that looks like an event hall in Glendale. And the Elvis kept calling her Chloe. Yeah, he's clearly a great (laughs) officiant. And obviously we know Chloe is his favorite. I think we should mention the fact that... This is literally a Dolce & Gabbana brand activation. And don't forget also the Portofino tourism board. (laughs) Like they basically made like a more exclusive Altamoda just for this family. Oh yes, as someone that's been to the Altamoda shows, how did the wedding match up? They have the same like flatware and stuff. Uh, The same like shirtless like male models like either serving you drinks or like beating drums or something. At least with keeping up, Yes, you'd get paparazzi photos of them, but there would be all these moments that were not seen that you could only see on the show. Can I note that the timing of this release is so bizarre because their one year anniversary is still a month away. It's like, why didn't you just make this like the the episode before the Kardashians are supposed to start? It's so much later than it being relevant to when the wedding actually happened, but not far enough away that it's actually the one year anniversary of them being married. This should have just come out sooner. 
Because then it would have packed the punch of like, remember when Kylie Jenner like laid low for a year and then posted that Instagram video of like everything we missed? Yes, and I feel that this has taken so long to come to air because it's Travis and Courtney editing this in such an excruciating fashion. I fuck with it. Also, there are things I didn't know. Like, I did not know that Andrea Bocelli performed uh, Elvis. I missed uh, Machine Gun Kelly's performance. I have never heard Machine Gun Kelly's music. Oh, it's dark. So I was like, oh, this is what it sounds like? There was very little from that wedding that I hadn't seen in paparazzi photos a year ago. The things that were new to me were which I could watch a whole hour in and of itself, is Ellen Von Unworth trying to make small talk with the Kardashian family. The second after they got married, they had to do a full Ellen Von Unworth photo shoot with like 10,000 different setups. From what I understand of and have seen in weddings, that does seem to take the majority of your time when you get married is the photo shoot you have to do afterwards and the photos you have to take with everyone. One thing I forgot about was Kim's outfit at the wedding, which is actually insane. It's like the most like sinister Edwardian like headmistress of a haunted orphanage vibe. As I like to say, her Sicilian widow look, which I still say she should stick with. Haunted. Also, I forgot about who wasn't there because we had no Rob, no Corey. Remember, we were speculating that they had broken up at that point because Corey did not attend. No Scott, obviously, but no Mason, which I think is interesting. Or was Mason there and he's old enough to be like, I do not consent to being in the special. He's what, like 13? Probably, yeah. 14, maybe. Maybe he didn't want to go. Sides with his dad or just like doesn't fuck with Trav. I don't know. So they got married three separate times in Vegas, which was not a legal wedding because they were too drunk. And obviously the Elvis officiant fucked up their paperwork because he's calling Courtney Chloe. I don't know. I think that that was just him making a joke. Like he was doing stand up basically. All right. I think maybe you're giving him a little too much credit, but we'll go. We'll go with that. The second wedding in Santa Barbara, which we had seen photos of, which we had speculated and then they confirmed that legally, if you are not a Italian is very hard to get married in Italy and his father and her grandmother could not fly which we must protect MJ at all costs and then this third wedding comes out of the mind of Domenico or Stefano I think it's more Domenico vibes I mean both of them they were all there I guess I didn't realize how small of a wedding it was which makes it all the more curious of like who are their friends Like, Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly being there. My favorite moment from this documentary as well is when Machine Gun Kelly is eating the pasta. And it seems like there was not a moment that there wasn't a camera in everyone's faces at every point of this wedding. And the photographer, I don't know if it was Ellen Von Unworth, but it was like, can we get you guys with the pasta? They want to do the Lady and the Tramp thing. And Megan Fox just goes, I don't eat gluten. And then it cuts. <laughs> when the Blink-182 guy gave a toast, I was like, oh, right. Like, Trav did have a whole identity before the Kardashians. I don't know if it's edited to be this way, if the rumors that Kim and Courtney are not on speaking terms are true. But the edits of Kim's wedding speech and Kylie's wedding speech is like, do you even know this person? Kylie's like, your love, it warms my heart. Great. And like Mark Hoppus a Blink-182 speech is like very heartfelt. Well, yeah, he wrote something in advance, clearly. Speaking of Kylie, 
we still don't have pictures of her and Timothy, but apparently his car is like at her house. Her car is was seen going up the driveway of his Beverly Hills home. We are recording this on the eve of the first weekend of Coachella, which always a peaceful weekend in Los Angeles. The best time to be here. But I wonder if we're going to get the first photos of Timothy and Kylie at Coachella. God, I hope so. Oh, look, your mom's here. Hey, Kathy. You want to say hi on the pod, mom? <laughs> wow, we've gotten brutally rebuffed by Kathy. Well, I think that's our sign that we should be wrapping things up. Thank you guys for listening. As of next week, guys, I will be off shooting the movie. We've got some fun episodes planned, but don't worry. Chelsea and I will be back relatively live-ish to talk about the Met Gala. Stay tuned for next week. We have a very fun episode with a very special guest. Yeah, excited. All right, bye, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>